when we look at this passage, I want to kind of explain a few things of this passage. When it gives this, uh, verse 1 and 2 is kind of setting the context and is given a little bit of history. Now, when Jesus, or excuse me, when they heard that Jesus, uh, excuse me, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. This was most likely time-wise, just to put connect with other Gospels. This was probably the moment when John the Baptist was arrested. It was in this scenario when John the Baptist was arrested, and then they arrest John the Baptist because of his ministry. And we know that John the Baptist and Jesus, there was a season together in Judea, and they baptized John the Baptist, excuse me, they arrest John the Baptist, and then they find out, oh, there's one greater than John the Baptist, let's go arrest him. Right, it's this basic, hey, you know, we're going to pursue, we're trying to stop this movement. And then we thought John the Baptist was the leader of the movement, but when we find out someone else is, we're after him. So it was probably that after they arrest John the Baptist, they were pursuing Jesus. And it was under that idea that he then left. So he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Quickly put a map in your head. You got Judea more in the south. You got Galilee headed north. And you've got, uh, you got Samaria right in the middle. So in verse 4, it says, and he had to pass through Samaria. It, it makes common sense if you don't understand the culture. It makes common sense that if I've got to go from point A to point B, I'm going to go the quickest way there. And Samaria is the quickest way to go from point A to point B. So we'll go through Samaria. But you've got to understand something. That, uh, that pure J- Jerusalem and Israelites were not fans of Samaritans. They did not get along. We're going to see this in the passage. And so when it makes this statement that Jesus had to pass through Samaria, he did not have to pass through Samaria. And normally he would, and we see in his other journeys, he in fact actually goes around Samaria. So when we look at this statement, he had to pass through Samaria. We've got to understand that the passage is clearly trying to communicate to us that the had here is no external commandment from Highway Patrol telling you you got to go this direction, but instead was an internal compelling by the Holy Spirit to go to Samaria. There's a, this is depth in this moment when he says he had to pass through Samaria. And we're going to see in the context as John begins to lay out all this story to us why we can see this and how we can see the importance of this. But I want us to how this communicates truth, number one, is that Jesus going to Samaria was him intentionally compelled internally to reach out to the woman that we're about to meet. Jesus was not forced to do this. No one made Jesus do this. Jesus chose to do this and was compelled to do so. Verse 9, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Verse 6. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the, the well. It was about the sixth hour. If you're looking at your Bibles, depending on what version you have and depending on the print edition, that you might have what mine has, and it has a footnote next to the sixth hour. Well, what does the sixth hour mean? Your translation may go ahead and put the meaning in, and it says what? Noon. It's the middle of the day. Now imagine... You're more towards the Middle East. It's the middle of the day. We're in springtime. We're getting to the warmer times of the day. And you're in the middle of a field on a hot day at the well. So it's hot. It's in the middle of the day, given context. Verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Fully makes sense. It's hot. It's the middle of the day. 
For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Paul's here before we continue on into the story as we think about this idea of reach. When, it, when we talk about what it means as Christians, what it means as believers, what it means for this truth that Jesus says, in the same way that the Father has sent Jesus, so I send you, as he speaks to his disciples, that you and I are sent on mission. There is no such thing as a saved believer who is not also sent on mission. It's not an option. And it's not just a commandment, even though it is a commandment. But what we're talking about is you and I can live on mission out of duty of being obedient to command because someone's making us and we can hate the whole process of it. That's not what we're talking about in maturity and living sin. But what we're talking about is this idea of reach is played out beautifully in Jesus right here when he says, I have to go through Samaria. It's this internal compelling him. It's something that's in him that he woke up that day and he's going on a journey. And he's just going, I, I just, I, I can't explain it, which I'm, I'm ad-libbing a little bit. Bear with me. The text doesn't say this. I'm applying it to some moments that maybe you and I have experienced. We go, I can't explain it, but I just feel like the Lord's telling me to do this. There's this internal compelling that leads him in this direction And for you and I, as we talk about what it means to live sin, it first starts about reach, that we reach out to the world around us. And that comes from an internal compelling and intentionality, not from an external command of someone pressuring us to do so. But it wells up within us because of our love for Jesus and because of our love for people. We live today going, I I may not explain it. I can't, you know, this or that. But I just feel like the Lord's telling me to do this or to do that. And so I'm living sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And I want to reach out to the world around me. When we talk about Jesus' reach, especially in the context of John, we are contrasted John chapter 4 with John chapter 3. And in John chapter 3, John clearly writes these stories to go, you know, here's one side of the coin, here's the other side of the coin. In John chapter 3, we see Jesus at night Go to a religious leader to reach out to him and communicate the gospel to him. And we see at least from just John chapter 3 that Nicodemus does not come to know Jesus. Does not put his faith and trust in Jesus. So remember this. It's nighttime. It's a religious leader. It, It is the respected person in the community. And Jesus comes to him and reaches out to him. John chapter 4 is clearly the exact opposite of that, that instead of night, it's in the day. We're going to see in a moment that the woman that he is talking to is not only a Samaritan woman, which is an issue, but she's also an adulterous woman. And so you went from nighttime religious leader to daytime the opposite of the religious leader. It's an intentional contrast. It's an intentional that, that Jesus is communicating his mission and his desire and what he's out for. And so as we continue this idea of reach and what he is doing, read with me beginning back in verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She's asking a really important question, and The answer to her question is summed up in truth number two. He reaches out to her in order to restore her. The answer to her question, why are you talking to me? It's not ultimately his goal and his desire of why talking to her is not to actually get physical water from her. We'll see from the text, that's not the focus. 
But the focus is he intentionally reaches out to her to restore her. Jesus answered her in verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman, not being aware that he is not talking about something physical literally at this moment, like this is his difference between, you know, like one type of water and another type of water. She's just not processing that. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whatever drinks of the water that I will give him, he will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. Still, she's not fully getting it, right? Hey, give me some water so I never have to come out here again. Now, before I explain that, let's continue on in reading so we fully get an idea of who this woman is. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman said to him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem, the place is where people come to worship. Let's talk about the woman for a second. The fact that not only what she reveals about herself, but even before we know that about her, the fact that she's at the hottest part of the day going to get water is very telling. You don't go and journey out of town to go and work and labor to get something in the hottest part of the day when you could get it in the morning or at night when it's cool, right? The, the common times for the, at least specifically this culture, the context of where the ladies would go out and get water would be in the morning or at night. The fact that she goes right in the middle of that is because she's trying to avoid people. She's trying to avoid people. She is the outcast of the outcast community. This Samaritan village is the outcast community. It's a whole village of outcasts, and she's an outcast within the outcast community. See the uh, difference between John chapter 3, right? And this is important to what John is trying to communicate and the beauty of this, but not only in just all of John's letter, the beauty, but specifically just in this story, we see Jesus reach out to restore the outcast of the outcast. In the middle of the day, she goes to draw water. So when Jesus says to her, I'll give you water, you'll never thirst again. She's like, this is great. I don't have to worry about this. I don't have to come out into public anymore. I don't have to come out in the hottest part of the day. Whatever her motivation was, uh, give me this. I want us to see something. Why does Jesus in this moment offer her living water? It's a unique way of sharing the gospel, right? When we see Jesus share the gospel at other moments, he doesn't always refer to salvation as living water. He doesn't always refer it to that way. So why is he talking about living water here? One, we do see that scripture talks about theologically in a sense that the Holy Spirit is a well that is within us. And there's a lot of connections to this in the Old and New Testament. But I also think the answer is just really simple and pragmatic. See, at this moment, 
you coming out at the hottest part of the day to get water, this is something you really need. This is something you really need. And when Jesus is offering her something, and she doesn't get it yet, but he's saying, I'm going to offer you something where you'll never desire or need again. And she's going, yes, that would be great. But he's not talking about water anymore. He's using that as a connection point. But he's wanting to get at what is the thing that she desires most. He's getting at the wells of her heart, if you will, to use the language of the text. And he does that by pointing out her husband. See, it's also an interesting thing when she comes to Jesus and she says, yes, I want this living water. It's always kind of interesting. Why does Jesus say what he says next? Go and call your husband and come here. There's two reasons he, I believe he makes this statement. First is he wants to point out that her pursuit of men is the living water that she's looking to sustain her. He's wanting to point out that all of us, listen to me, this is just the truth. All of us are pursuing something to worship that will give us complete value and satisfaction that will fill our thirst for desire and love and everything we need. This is called idol worship. The thing that you pursue most to try to fulfill your life is the living water you are pursuing for your life. And for this woman, just it doesn't always play out. It's different for all of us. But for this woman, it was men. It was relationships. She had had five husbands. One of the reasons, there could be, we don't know other things, but one of the reasons you have five husbands is partly this mentality is that this husband, for whatever reason, wasn't it then maybe this husband will be it. For whatever reason, that husband wasn't it. Then the next husband. And then after the five, we're we're not even going to do the marriage thing anymore. We're just going to live together. We're not even going to worry about the marriage thing. Point is, if we, the text is trying to emphasize her going from one guy to the next. And I believe it's because Jesus is trying to show in her heart and expose her heart that she is looking for ultimate satisfaction in relationships. And Jesus is trying to say her, you'll find it in the living water I'm about to give you. He is, he is calling her out in a loving way to try to expose the idol worship in her heart. And until she can recognize, listen to me, until you recognize what you worship above Jesus, you're not able to cast that idol down in order to worship Jesus. And he deals with the idol in her heart and out of love to restore her and to offer her living water. And you'll never thirst again. This is the thing that you'll drink it and you will be satisfied. See, the things in creation, literally like water and like food, we drink it and it satisfies in the moment, but it doesn't last. This food, I'm hungry this morning, but guess what? I then ate lunch and I will eat dinner in a bit. We all will. And why? Because it satisfies, but it doesn't last. My kids coming up at Christmas, they're excited and they want this gift. And if they have this gift, they'll be satisfied and they're going to get that gift. And within a week, they're going to want something else. It's just how it works. Why? Because there's nothing in creation that will fill us and hold us satisfied. And Jesus is going, but I'm that living water. And guess what? You'll be so satisfied, you'll never thirst again. See what he's doing? He's stepping in and he calls her out to, one, show the idol in her heart. But the second reason is I believe he gives her an opportunity to confess. He gives her an opportunity to confess. He doesn't just straight out call out her sin, but instead gives her an opportunity to be honest about her sin. 
When it comes to restoration, you need to hear me. Christ is offering you living water and wants to restore you. But that does not happen by hanging on to the idols and sins of your heart. Unconfessed sin is keeping you and I eternally separated from him. He's calling us, and he's not doing it out of condemnation, but he's doing it out of freedom that if we recognize this idol sin in our heart and then we confess it to him, we're, it's this moment of surrender and giving it all to him. And so he asked her, go call your husband and come here. And he knows the answer to the question, right? But she does what? The woman answered, I have no husband. She confesses. She's honest. She makes it clear. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying you have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus' statement is a statement of affirming her, but it's also a statement of him communicating, revealing that he knows everything about her and he's still talking to her. He knows everything about her and he's still offering her living water. If you're in here today, let me just take a moment and I want to encourage you that Christ loved you so much that he had to go to Samaria. Better yet, he had to come, John chapter 1, Christmas season. He had to, Philippians 2, empty himself of his glory. Listen to me. He didn't have to come because of an external command of something else forcing him. He had to come because of an internal compelling out of love for you. Philippians 2 says he stepped out of his glory. He took on flesh and dwelt among you to come to you, even though he knows about all your sins and all of my sins, to let us know he loves us. He reached out, and he is restoring. And this woman is a picture of all of us. All of us. Where he wants to dethrone the idols of our heart. He wants us to confess those things in order to be restored unto him. Continuing on, the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said, you're right, you've had five husbands. Going down to verse 19. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. If we were just preaching that text I just read, we would there would be a lot more I would say. But I just want to simply say this. Why is she bringing this up? It's kind of odd. Why at this moment is she bringing up what's the right place to go and worship? And the reason is, is because of that encounter, worship is coming to her mind. Let's just leave it at that for time's sake. Worship is coming to her mind. And she's recognizing that, that there's a prophet in front of her whose God is speaking to her through this prophet. She doesn't know yet that it's the Messiah, or at least she doesn't confess it. And so because of that, God's doing a work in her life, and she wants to respond in worship. But she needs to know the right place to go in worship to do that. Right? Do I go here? Do I go there? She's wanting to respond, and Jesus gives her a beautiful answer. But simply, he says that you can worship where you are. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Verse 20, just then his disciples came back. 
them marveled that he was talking with the woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? Listen to this, verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? I want you to recognize that it's through this encounter that we see her restored. We see her restored, and John gives a beautiful imagery of this by telling us really two things. In this moment, she dropped her water jar, which is, John's a very poetic writer, and I believe the picture of her dropping her water jar is a picture of her letting go of that water that she was seeking that wasn't satisfying. Remember, this whole idea, water is a picture of salvation in this text. And John is telling us that she left that water pell there. This earthly water was no longer what she was hanging on to. She has received something else. And then the second thing was, is she went into town to talk to the very people she was out of town trying to avoid. See that? There's a change that has happened in her heart because her identity is no longer an outcast of the outcasts. Her identity is one who has been restored by God into right relationship with God. And so what does she do? Truth number three, she reproduces. You reach, restore, and reproduce. Look what happens. Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Can this be the Messiah? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to him, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This is beginning one of the greatest dialogues about missions in in all of scripture, and it's in this text. And John's using it through a similar illustration with the woman. With the woman, it was about water. She was focused on getting physical water. The disciples were focused on getting physical food. I want you to see something here. I believe John chapter 4 is much of a loving rebuke to the disciples as it was in an encounter with the woman at the well. I want us to see this dialogue that begins to take place about this idea of reproducing the message that God has given us. See, they were so focused on their religion, and we're going to see how that's so in a minute. They were so focused on their religion, partly when they say, why are you talking to this woman? And when they're asking that, it's showing that in their religion, which says to not associate with the Samaritans, that they were living by that and they were ignoring people. They were not reaching, but Jesus was. And in their not reaching, they go into a town full of people, and all they focus on is the physical thing, and they miss the people. See, they were so focused on food. I have food to eat that you don't know about, Jesus says. So when they're trying to get him to work on physical food, he's saying there's a greater food out there and you're missing it. Verse 33, so the disciples said to one another, has has anyone brought him something to eat? They're as clueless as the woman at the well was earlier on and how he's using these metaphorically. But listen to this statement in verse 34. Jesus said to him, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say there are four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. I want you to get this. We see the woman go into town and she goes, hey, there's a guy outside of town that's the Messiah. Come and see. And they are leaving the town and they're coming out. And while they're doing that, Jesus is talking to his disciples who just went into town and told no one 
that the Messiah was outside of town. And while this woman, who is an outcast of outcasts, had been reached out to, restored, she runs back into the town to say the Messiah is out of town. And when they're, imagine this, picture this, as they are coming out of the town, Jesus is having this conversation. And when he makes this statement, look and see. You say the harvest is in four months. It's spring. Harvest would have been coming later. You say the harvest is four months away. Look and see and imagine. I, I, I believe this. Text doesn't affirm this explicitly, but I believe it. I believe in that moment Jesus was pointing at the crowd coming to him. See, you say the harvest is four months away, but look and see at those people coming. The harvest is ready now, and you went all the way into town and you missed it, but this woman did it. Get that? It's a beautiful picture here, listen to me, of how a lot of truths here. But one of the things is, listen to me, church family. It's unfortunately, I don't believe that this is necessarily always the case, but it's been my experience that the longer someone is a Christian, the less likely they are to reach out to the world around them. It's not always. Thank goodness there's exceptions to every rule. But I need you to know the longer that I've been a Christian and the more I walk as a pastor, the harder it is for me to get outside of these walls and reach out to the community around me. Not necessarily because of lack of desire, but because we get so focused in on the religious things of this church and get so focused in on the religious aspects. I got to preach another sermon. I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to counsel. All those things I love to do. Don't get me wrong. But I think the challenge of this text that Jesus gives to his disciples is you are so busy serving me, you miss the people as you walk past them. See see what's happening here? You are so busy going to get the king of kings food, which I'm I'm putting myself with the disciples because I'm telling you, I would have been right there with them. Jesus needs some food. Let's get him food. I'm I'm serving him some food. and, And I come back and he's like, you missed the main thing in the process. And the truth is, I confess to you as your pastor, I often find myself so busy finding food for Jesus and serving him in the religious things that I miss the harvest that's all around me. And when we talk about what does it mean to engage our city with the love of Jesus one relationship at a time, we're talking about being the woman at the well. We're talking about recognizing that we, outside of Christ, we are the outcast of the outcast. None of us are deserving. But Christ loved us so much that he reached out to us, he restores us, and then he sends us to reproduce that into other people's lives. And based off this text, he's just challenging us to look and see the harvest is plentiful. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. This is the woman who they ridiculed and outcasted. Get that? But she, being restored and changed, a new creation in Christ, come back into the town, communicates the gospel. They bring people to Jesus, and many people believe because of her testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you have said that we believe. For we have heard ourselves that we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. Here's a beautiful picture that it's not our words and our testimony alone that saves people. But it is through us being on mission. It's through us living sin. As we communicate and invite people to Jesus. It's when they encounter him that they ultimately put their faith and trust in Jesus. 
This is an encouraging thing because he chooses to work through his church. He chooses to work through his people to bring other people to himself. But it also takes the pressure off in a sense of going, it's, it's not our job to convince people of Jesus. It's our job just to point people to Jesus and say, this is Jesus. Come and see. And when they see for themselves, they see that indeed he is the Savior of the world. As we begin to kind of just apply and transition a little bit tonight, let me ask you some questions personally. Is what is it if you were to put yourself as the woman at the well? I want to encourage you that you are no, as long as you are breathing, no matter where you are in life, you're not too far gone from Christ's reach. He has reached and his reach covers all. So if you are in here today at all and you're hearing condemnation, I just want to encourage you that he loved you so much that he reached out to you to, yes, call out your sin, but not to condemn you in your sin, but to save you from your sin. Big difference. And as, would you see that he is reaching out, that he wants to restore you, and then he wants to use your life to reproduce the gospel into the kingdom around him. That his kingdom would be advanced in the world around you. Does this make sense? Is this encouraging? I hope that you would see that Christ loves you and reach out to us. To you. Now, to close, I, I, want, I said that I want to look at this in the larger context and why do I think this is one of the greatest missional texts in all of Scripture? For a few reasons. In John chapter 1, verse uh, 7, or excuse me, verse 9, we see John kind of give a glimpse of a great truth about Jesus. He says, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own which believed to be the Jewish people, and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. See the contrast is that he is light, and he came to his people. John chapter 3 is a picture of Jesus coming, and it's imagery of dark, and they did not receive. And so he, John chapter 4 is a picture of then he goes to away from the religious of the religious, and he goes to the outcast of the outcast, and we see a beautiful picture of his gospel. Now, here's, as we read the rest of Scripture, we believe, we could argue from other texts, that Nicodemus actually did, in fact, come to know Christ. We see Nicodemus take care of Jesus at the end of his ministry and the end of his life. So we know that, that Nicodemus was involved. And so this isn't a statement just of, of Jewish, non-Jewish. not the point. The point is, it's a picture that John is clearly trying to communicate that Jesus has come to be the Savior of the world, not just of the Jewish people. And we see this further, Acts 1.8 and when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll be my witnesses, what? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to John chapter 2, verse 23. I want you to see the flow of the story of this text, of, of these stories from John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verse 23. Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover... We see the placement of the story from John chapter 2 on, beginning in verse 23. He starts in Jerusalem. Then in 3 verse 22, and after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. And in John chapter 4, he left Judea and went to Samaria. And then at the end of John chapter 4, they call him the Savior of the world. This is the only part, place in Scripture besides Acts 1-8 that we see this flow. Jerusalem, Judea. Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the picture is that in 
the Holy Spirit in the church in Acts 1-8 comes on us, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He is not asking us to do something he hasn't already done. Do you see what John is saying in these few chapters? He is saying Jesus has already shown this to us. And so his encounter with the woman at the well is a picture ultimately of Christ walking from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth in order to communicate his restoration. Likewise, we here at New Hope to live sent to the world around us is both local and global. It begins right here and it goes to the ends of the earth. Which is why we're engaged in missions all around. And we desire to do that. And we partner all around. But I want us to see the picture that when we talk about living sent to the world around us, we're not just talking about being nice to people. That's clearly something you should do. But we're talking much more of a vision of recognizing, Jesus, I will live for you today, compelled internally to reach out to love on people, to show them that there's a living water that will satisfy them if they turn to Jesus, restore people unto Jesus, and then trust that through them and through my life, this will be reproduced globally to the world around us. This is what it looks like for us to look mature and live missionally as believers in this church. So as we end this series, I want to conclude with this. Colossians 1 Paul says, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone so that they will be blameless. God is calling us to blamelessness. Now recognize this is not something we're earning. This is something the Holy Spirit's working in us. But as we walk with him, we do not want to be infant babies in Christ. I'm so grateful that he has birthed me in him, but I want to grow And I want to pursue holiness and I want to pursue those things. And for you here at New Hope, I just pray that that this series would be an encouragement. We're going to use this language a lot in the days to come. But what does it mean to live surrendered to him? What does it mean to live surrounded? And what does it mean to every single day to live sent to the world around you? Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for your goodness. Jesus, is any time I read this passage and just read the gospel story in general, but specifically this passage... I can't help to be reminded of the reality that I am the woman at the well, that we all are in ways, that all of us, prior to knowing you, were worshiping something else, looking for it to satisfy. But Jesus, I'm so grateful that you reached out to me. You didn't just come and live on earth literally and physically You didn't just die. You didn't just be resurrected. I'm grateful for all of those things. Absolutely, I'm not minimizing that. But then 2,000 years later, you reached out to my heart. You reached out to me. And you said, Jonathan, I'm what you're looking for. I created you for me. You'll be satisfied in me. I'm what your heart's looking for. And I'm grateful that when my flesh wanted to lie to me and tell me that I was giving up something in order to surrender to Christ, I'm so grateful that I actually learned I was gaining everything. So Father, I pray for those in this room that just need, maybe, or they're currently in this situation where they have not found that living water. They do not know you as 
Lord and Savior of their lives. Maybe today is the day for salvation for them. Father, I pray that as they are convicted of their sin, convicted of this reality that we have done things that have not honored you and have disobeyed you and rebelled against you, that, that we are the outcasts as we come to that and recognize that. And if there's someone in this room that is maybe recognizing that for the first time, would they recognize that you did not leave them there, but you are pursuing them right where they are. You are, pursu- you are reaching out to them today. And you're inviting them to drop their bell of water, to drop the thing of this world that does not satisfy and surrender to you to find the living water that satisfies. And so I pray today that they would recognize that idol and then they would confess it unto you and surrender, just like the woman did. They drop it and surrender to you. If that's you, Romans 10, 9 says that if you'll just confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Would you give your life to Jesus today? And the second thing, Jesus, that I'm always reminded of when I read this passage is the disciples. They were so busy serving you, they missed the whole purpose of serving you with the people. Jesus, don't let us miss the people that we're going to encounter tomorrow. Don't let us miss them. But let us live a life tomorrow where we're in town and we're working. We're doing all those things, absolutely. But we're saying, there's Jesus. He's right here. Jesus is here. Jesus has come. The one who will give you living water and you'll never thirst again. He has come and you can know him. Jesus, let us live like that tomorrow. We worship you. We glorify you. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we spend a moment of worshiping him?